Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome back to the Kākāpō Files from RNZ. I'm Alison Balance and in episode 23 we will find out that some of this year's Kākāpō chicks have graduated. Later on we're going to go to the dogs. Conservation dogs that is. First up, though, let's cut straight to the chase with some kākāpō news from Daryl Eason from the Department of Conservation's kākāpō recovery team. We spoke on the 2nd of August. Kia ora, Daryl, and welcome back again to the Kākāpō Files. Hi, thanks very much, Ellie. Good to be back. I just couldn't help myself. I just want to find out what's going on. I felt like I left the podcast last time and said, don't know when I'll be back, but I think we just need a quick catch-up. So... I thought we'd start first with about the sick birds, the birds with aspergillosis. So where are we at with that? Good news, actually. They're improving, which is fantastic. So there's currently 18 birds still in hospital. There's five of them that are there for other reasons apart from aspergillosis. But overall, we've had 45 birds in hospital this year and 27 have been returned. So some of them were just, because we were so uncertain about the aspergillosis, we sent up eight of the adult females that had been nesting just for a quick scan and return home. And really about 15 of the other chicks that went up were treated for a while and proven to not have aspergillosis. But the good thing is now that we are seeing birds that have had lung disease and aspergillosis actually resolving. So the five birds at Dunedin Wildlife Hospital, they are all cleared now. They will probably come home in the next week or two. So they just need to be off their antibiotics or antifungal medication for a while now and just be certain that there's no relapse before they get a clean bill of health and come home. And we've got three at NDCCM at Auckland Zoo that have also got a clean bill of health now and they might take another three to four weeks before they're ready to come back. One in particular that I'd like to mention is Alice 3A and she was one of the first chicks to head up way back in May, I think I went up with, with her and she had multiple granulomas in her lungs so that's just the walled off areas of the fungus and some quite large granulomas and her respiration really did sound quite bad. She was a bit coffee and just sounded not so good. So her last CT scan on Monday showed that all granulomas have now gone and her lungs are in a pretty healthy state. So that's just fantastic. And just talking to James Chatterton from Auckland Zoo, and he said he's never encountered a bird with audible respiratory problems like that that has recovered and not died. 
So that's fantastic. That's excellent news and makes her a bit of a record breaker then. It is really. So we've had another five birds scanned this week. We had Alice 3A cleared and I haven't had the results of Pearl 2 and Cindy yet, but Margaret Marie still has some lung disease in her right lung, but her left lung is cleared up now and she is progressing. So that's looking pretty positive for her. It's very encouraging that the kākāpō are responding so well to treatment. Yeah, I think it it looked pretty gloomy there for a while and it was so hard to be sure what was happening, but we were prepared for several more deaths and now it's looking quite likely that most of the birds will return. I suspect the sickest bird still is Esperance 2B, who is improving. Her scan on Monday is is more improvement and a lot of the time she's she's most looking really well now as, as well. So And very encouraging. So the likes of Margaret Marie and Esperance 2, they still might be finishing off treatment before they can be sent back, or maybe mid-October by the time they come home, if, if all goes well for them. It's a long, slow road, isn't it? It sure is, but it's going to be worth it. Birds being treated for things other than aspergillosis, I gather there has been a bit of an accident recently. Can you tell me about RA2B? Yeah, that was a really unfortunate accident. Well, fortunate in a way, <laughs> just with our checking regime, because at that stage, being sighted every six days and, and weighed every 12th, and so on her sighting check, she was found hanging in a tree. She was caught in the fork of a small tree by her right leg, just above her hock joint. And it's a bit hard to be sure how long she was there for, but 24 to 48 hours maybe. And she had severely dislocated her hock joint. But the worst thing is that just being caught in the fork of the tree, it had, it had really substantially reduced her circulation to her foot and toes in particular. She's doing pretty well considering what she went through. We got her off the island the day she was found after giving her a bit of pain relief and extra fluids and she's now at the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital with Lisa and Lisa didn't want me to get too excited about her recovery because she really said that it's 50-50 and it's going to be a long process. So we're not sure what's going to happen. But we were getting prepared for euthanasia because it looked like the leg could well die. But she managed to get circulation through and to most of the foot. And the worst problem now are, are two toes. So the best thing she might come up with is, is a couple of toe or partial toe amputations if they continue to die. But she's going to go through a long process of sloughing off the skin of her foot and that has to be treated carefully to get it to regrow again. So things are looking a bit more encouraging, but it's going to be a long process and we also have to make sure that her tendons from her dislocation are still going to work in the future. So we'll see in a few weeks' time just how, how she does. Because she still needs to be able to climb and clamber around, doesn't she? Yes, and I think she's starting to get a little bit more mobile now, but Lisa reports that she's just a lovely patient and she's feeding well for herself. So, so far so good. And as she gets a bit more strength again and 
movement in her foot, she might be able to start moving around. But at the moment, I think it's a, a reasonably immobile life. Has she got any company in Dunedin now? Uh, yes, there's still five other chicks there, but they may not be there for much longer because all of those five have been cleared for aspergillosis. And probably in the next week or two, they are ready to come home. And all going well, we might get Queenie 3 a back next week as well from, from Dunedin, going on from her broken leg. So she's moving well? She's going really well. So the, the main thing that was holding her up was just she had some final little infections coming down to get, get over following her leg injury. But, but that seems to be all cleared up now, so she, and she's looking great. Well, that's all encouraging news. We'll keep our fingers crossed for R2B because that sounds like it will be a long, uncertain future for her at the moment. Yes, long and uncertain, but better than it looked in the first day or two, that's for certain. Because I take it she couldn't cope with just one leg. I mean, there's really no option for amputation for her, is there? Not really. Some of the other parrots that Lisa had seen with one leg, they, they really struggle, and especially she'd certainly not be able to live in the wild, especially with a a flightless parrot that really depends on those legs. So now that some birds are being returned from the wildlife hospitals and are heading back out to Whenua Ho, how many birds have you got on the weaning pens? There's 10 in there at the moment. Eight of them have been weaned and they're really, really ready for the release at the moment. But um, just with this cold snap of weather, a lot of rain on Whenua Ho, we'll just have to wait until it finds up a bit and eight birds will be ready for release next week or the week after. And there's two of the birds from Anchor Island, Stella 1 and Aparima 2, that are very close to weaning now. And so they'll be a couple of weeks behind those other eight. And all the other chicks that are out in the wild, they're all doing OK? They are. They're, they're doing really quite well. And some, some are starting to leave home, just some of the early birds. So... Suzanne 3A has left the family and gone right across the other side of Whenuaho and Hanimoa 3A seems to have separated and it looks like Marama's chicks are separating out on Anchor Island as well. Which brings us to the question of at which point do these chicks stop being chicks and I'm thinking with human babies, you know, you start off you're a baby and then you're a toddler and then you're a child and then you're an adolescent and then finally you get to be a grown-up. What's the progression or what's your progression for Kākāpō and when do the chicks stop being chicks? Their next life stage we class as a juvenile and that comes on from 150 days. So now 60% of our chicks have passed 150 days old so that's great. They're they're really adult size, they look like a kākāpō and they're working towards becoming independent over the next several weeks from them, from their mums. Oh, that's brilliant. So we've still got 142 living adults. How do you divide the 72 chicks up now? How many are still chicks and how many are juveniles? So there are 43 juveniles now of wow. the 72 chicks. I think we'll be waiting for all of the birds to come back from hospital before we really do the official tally of the current kākāpō population. So at what point does a juvenile get counted as an adult? At four and a half years old. So it's at five years that we expect to see the first breeding, especially from females. 
Well, hopefully all the birds out there on the islands will cope with the southerly blast going through at the moment and then there'll be some more juveniles on their way out into the big wide world. Yes, absolutely. That'd be great. And the first few birds that we've already released, they've all separated from each other and they are exploring the entire island. So they've gone absolutely everywhere. So it makes finding them a bit hard then. <laughs> it certainly does. It can, yes. And they don't necessarily stay in one place for that long. So they're really in their exploratory stage. That's lovely to imagine those birds at night just wandering around Whenua Hau, wandering around Anchor, discovering what this new world is. Absolutely. It's, it's really cool. It's great. Thanks, Daryl. That was technical officer and all-round kākāpō guru Daryl Eason from Doc's kākāpō recovery team. Now for something a little different. You might know that as well as the Kākāpō Files, I make a weekly science and environment programme for RNZ called Our Changing World. I cover lots of stories that touch on conservation issues that are relevant to the wider Kākāpō story, and I thought I'd share one of those stories with you. Bit of context, Kākāpō today only live on predator-free islands, And it's worth remembering that the three main Kākāpō islands haven't always been that way. They each had introduced mammals at some stage that have had to be eradicated to make the islands safe. Hōturu had feral cats and Pacific rats. Anchor Island had deer and stoats. And Whenua Hou had possums and Pacific rats, as well as weka, which is a flightless native bird that's a keen hunter and wasn't native to the island. All of these pests were successfully removed and the challenge now is to ensure the islands stay pest-free, which is where the next story comes in. Last time I was on Whenua Hau, one of New Zealand's amazing conservation dogs was also visiting. Gadget and her handler, Sandy King, were there to make sure there were no rodents. And I tagged along with them for a while. I'm Sandy King and I'm a conservation dog handler. And my partner here is a Jack Russell Fox Terrier cross named Gadget. Gadget is wearing an extremely bright little coat. She is. It identifies her as a working dog. It's got Conservation Dogs New Zealand on it. It's a signal to her when she's wearing her jacket that she's in work mode, but it also lets people know that she isn't just any old dog out in a national park or a place where she shouldn't be. She's actually a dog with a job. And she's on a nature reserve on Whenuaho Codfish Island. So what are you two doing here? We're looking for rats or mice. Here we're carrying out what you might call routine surveillance. So Whenuaho is currently pest-free, certainly, we hope, rodent-free, and it's our job to make sure it stays that way. So I think twice a year a dog, a rodent detection dog, is sent out here and just has a good sniff around in high-risk areas, particularly around where people are, around the hut and all the human activity, habitation, but also areas of coastline adjacent to where boats might be mooring. So you're starting here at the hut, and that's obviously a risk because people come and go from it all the time with lots of bags. Yep, bags. Um, When we arrived, all the bags were checked in the hut, and Gadget gave them a bit of a sniff over as well when they were opened. So they got the all clear. Where human activity is, is the place of highest risk, and rats and mice just tend to gravitate towards 
where people are too. So if someone came ashore somewhere else, it might end up here. Because there's food here, potentially some nice warm places to sleep. Yes, quite often I think they're looking for a place to nest rather than food. Um, People have found them in places that they're totally surprised, nesting on the foredeck of a fishing boat. There's no food there, but there's a nice cosy place to nest when they chew up a coil of rope and just burrow down into it. And that's what they're looking for as much as the food. Okay, well I'll tag along with you and see what this job entails. Sure. Gadget leads the way down the path. A number of little huts and outhouses around the Whenuahau hut. And Sandy's going to check all of those. So what's the advantage of a dog over us, Sandy? They can smell things. Their sense of smell is many times, um, I'm not sure how many times, millions, tens of thousands of times better than ours. So whereas we can see things like maybe rodent chewing or droppings, the dog will pick up things that we can't see just through the scent, their ability to smell. Come. Gadget, come. Good girl. So nothing interesting in there, which is good. That's what we want to find. How do you keep it interested if you're not finding anything? Um, Every now and then I bring some um, training scent I guess with us. So I've got with me on the island here a piece of dried rat fur and some containers, one of which has fresh, relatively fresh rat poo in it. I'll play games with her. I might hide the rat fur or I might just sit her down with three containers in front of her. One of them has got rat droppings in it and the other two have got nothing. She has to point out the one with the rat droppings and then we switch them around and she's got to point it out each time she points out the right one, she gets a wee reward. So it's a game. And she's looking at me now like, why are you standing here? Because there's nothing and I'm bored. <laughs> OK, you better lead on then. So the generator shed, you might think there's nothing here for a rat, but when the generator's been running, it's warm. And that in itself is an attractant. Now as we're walking around, there's lots of trap boxes as well and traps, so they've, they've actually got a, a perpetual line of defence here. Yeah, that's... Right, um, one of the disadvantages of a dog is that she's only working, I guess for an instant, as she passes a particular site, whereas a trap on site is working 24-7. And so the dog is a very useful tool. It's a tool that can do things that a lot of the other tools can't, but it's not the only tool. Um, We need a combination of traps and tracking tunnels, um, human eyes and vigilance, and the dog's nose to give the place a really... It's thorough going over and ensure that if anything does arrive, we detect it at the soonest possible time. So you're constantly watching what she's doing. Her behaviour tells you a lot? Yeah, her behaviour tells me whether she's onto one of her target scents, which is either rats or mice, or in a new area like this. She's been here before, but it's still relatively fresh and new today. So... She checks out scents, and she's allowed to do that. It's her job to investigate smells. So she's allowed to check out new smells, but it's what she does afterwards that tells me whether or not it's a rat or a mouse or just something interesting. How old is she? She's six and a half. And when did she start her working career? Probably at just over a year old. Um, She had to go through a certification process and... Part of that is 
I guess, an interim certification, which is a bit like getting your learner's driver's licence. So once she got that at just over a year old, she was able to come out and work with me to, in places with restrictions. She wouldn't have been allowed to come here, for example, but she could go to other places and start working and learning how to do her job properly. And then when she was just over 18 months old, she got her full certification, so like getting your full driver's licence and losing all those restrictions. She's just looking around now, or sniffing around. Smell. She's not hunting anything in particular, she's just investigating. And I think it's good to familiarise her with the smells of the island in general. And there's a lot of bird species here that she doesn't encounter in her day-to-day life. So just recognising those, thinking, ah, it's one of those, but we're not interested, is part of the job. Because it's such a smell-driven world, it's completely different, their world, to ours. It must be, yeah. And they must wonder sometimes why on earth we can't detect something which is like an enormous flashing beacon to them. Um, Rats sent in a room must just be overwhelming to a dog and yet we can't detect it at all often. Yeah, so she's not really doing much here. We'll go back out along the beachfront or towards the helicopter pad. So we're out on the helipad. This is where we arrived today with the helicopter. So again, I suppose another really obvious place that something might arrive on the island. Yeah, if something had jumped out of the helicopter, it could still be around in this area. So that's why we check sites like this, which are the, the arrival points there for people in their gear and potentially any stowaways. Where else could rats come ashore? They could come from boats, I suppose. Would they possibly make it from Stuart Island? It seems really unlikely that they would make it from Stewart Island. It's well beyond their known swimming range, but I think with rats in particular, you should never say they can't or they won't because they can and they will. Assisted by, say, floating on seaweed or logs, they could perhaps get here, but there's some quite good currents that go between Stewart Island and Whenuahoe, so it seems really unlikely um, more likely that they would come from a boat that's moored close in here. Has Whenuaho had any rodent scares? I believe there's been two that I'm aware of. Um, one, I think a rat was actually caught in one of the traps um, after the rats had been cleared from it. And another one just a couple of years ago where someone found some really unusual droppings. People thought they might have been a rodent, but it turned out to be a kereroo. But it was a really good thing because it made people wake up and, I guess, have a practice run through the incursion response. Yeah, so it just heightens your state of readiness, I guess. Well, Gadget's not looking particularly interested in the helipad? No, not at all. She's looking around, just taking in the scenery and the, the sounds, the smells, the sights of where she is. But I might just walk her down onto the beach, along the beachfront a little bit and just and around in this general area and then maybe back to the hut and up the track 50, 100 metres or so. How many rodent dogs are there in New Zealand? I'm not 100% sure but I think around about 20 in the conservation dog programme um, give or take a few. So yeah. she's a Jack Russell, what other kinds of dogs make good rodent dogs? It's one of those cases where they're not exactly sure what she is, but they believe she's a Jack Russell Foxy West Highland Cross. 
terrier breeds generally make good rodent dogs because they're bred for it. So quite a few in the programme are Border Terrier, Jack Russell or Fox Terrier crosses. At the very beginning I forgot to mention that not only is she wearing her bright little conservation dog jacket, she's also wearing a muzzle. Why is that? She has to wear it as part of, I guess, the conditions of her certification when she's working in a place like Whenuaho, which is a nature reserve, or on any public conservation land. And where there are a lot of threatened or endangered species, so protected wildlife, really. And even though she's trained not to touch things, I mean, I think I'm 99.99% sure that if I took the muzzle off, she wouldn't go on a killing rampage. But she's still a dog. And there is that tiny, tiny chance that something might happen. So it's just an added precaution. And I have to say, you're extremely well coordinated with your dog there, Sandy, with your jacket as well. (laughs) Yes, yes, that is also part of the conditions, that I'm wearing this bright orange vest with dog handler emblazoned across the back, and that helps people identify me, I guess, as working and that we're, we're a team. It's probably not so much of a, an issue here on Whenua Ho, which is a closed island, but I know you do a lot of work on Elver Island at Stewart Island too, and that's a, a popular visitor site, so doubtless there you're working with lots of tourists around. Yeah, and it's a place where you're not allowed to take a dog normally, so I think it's pretty important that we show ourselves as being there officially with a job to do. Um, we have actually been reported several times people have seen her footprints on the beach and call into Doc to say there's been a dog on Olva, but they generally they know we're out there, so they can say, are the footprints small? And if they are, then it's OK. It's probably Gadget. Good on them, though. It's a... Yeah, it's really good that people are vigilant enough to report that. And is there an advantage to having a small dog doing it? Yes, there's advantages and disadvantages. Um, the advantages are the food bills down, When you're in a place like this where I have to pick up the poop, there's not quite so much of that. And she's very easy to transport. She sits on my lap in the helicopter or a plane or anything really. And if there's places that we travel, particularly around the coast and rocks, there's often sections that are quite hard for a dog to traverse. So she's really easy just to lift up and put up ahead of me if it's really steep track, for example, and she can't jump. Um, some of the ones in Fiordland are a bit like that. There's sections where you have to lift the dog up so that they can get up, and while you can climb using your hands, and the dogs can't. And if I have to carry her, she's not too difficult to get into a backpack. Um, getting her on and off boats onto wharves, there, some of the times it's a long way down and you have to climb down over tyres and fenders where the, I can just put her in a little bag and pass her down, and she's light enough so that it's really easy for me to do. If she was a 30 kilo Labrador, I think I'd be really struggling. So among the things you've had to train her then is that just ability to relax and let herself be lifted and carried if necessary. Yeah, um, and by other people, by strangers. So I started when she was just a little pup. I'd pick her up and hold her in the air above my head and walk around the house with her like that and get other people to do the same thing or put her in a shopping bag and just pass her from person to person so that she learned to feel comfortable with it. So how did you train her? I trained her to I guess, indicate for rats and mice by playing with dead ones that I had caught in my traps around home. Um, just tie a dead rat to a piece of string and drag it along and terriers and terrier pups just want to chase, or she did anyway. She wanted to chase it and catch it, so it's just a big game to her. Um, 
start off like that and then start hiding it. And so she's trying to dig to get it, and then I encourage her and reward her for that. And the ultimate reward is to get the rat there, but that's not always possible. She can't catch the rat, can't catch her target species with the muzzle on. It's not part of the job is to catch them. She's a detection dog, so sometimes I will substitute a catch with a ball. Yeah, she that's her most favourite thing in the world almost as a ball and but she's also really keen on food so a, a food reward's a really good thing and I can actually slip a little treat in between the bars of her muzzle. And the flip side of that is how do you teach her to ignore everything else? By ignoring them myself largely so there's all sorts of ways of training dogs to ignore things but I like to do it by I guess habituation um, there were some say quite seabirdy places not far from where I live so I would take her and just go and sit there in amongst a penguin or a titi colony and eat my lunch. And she would have to sit there and be bored as well. So I think to teach them off or train them off the scents, you have to expose them to those scents and then just be really disinterested. Um, give them a bit of a no, you know, teach them what the word no means to start and then give them a no if they go to investigate that scent too closely and just go away. So how many different islands have you worked on, do you reckon? Do you keep a tally? Not off the top of my head, but we have actually chalked up a few. Um, She's been as far south as Campbell Island, and I guess as far north as Rangitoto, and out to Great Mercury, and east to the Chatham Islands. So it's a job that gets you around? It is. um, Having the dog is a ticket to places that I probably wouldn't be invited to go otherwise. You're here for a few days checking out as much as you can of the island? Yeah, we're here for a week and we will cover as much of the island as we can in that time using the track network but also doing a bit of bush bashing. Uh, We'll try and cover sites where I know boats often moor and get into the coast and the bush adjacent to those sites. Um, But yeah, just generally have a good look around, a good sniff around in Gadget's case. Thanks, Sandy. That was conservation dog handler Sandy King and her dog Gadget. And you can keep in touch with them both on Facebook at Detector Gadget. You can also stay in touch with all things Kākāpō on Facebook at Kākāpō Recovery. And you can find the Kākāpō files, of course, at rnz.co.nz slash kākāpō or at rnz Kākāpō files on most podcast apps. I'm Alison Balance and I am definitely not back for a while now as I'm off to enjoy some islands in a completely different part of the world. But stay subscribed and I'll be back in a few weeks' time. Thanks for your company. Catch you next time. Mate wa. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.